Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the M60 Podcast. On this episode, I interview my head coach from my college football days, Mr. Dale Carlson. Coach Carlson was the head football coach at Tri-State University, which is now Trine University, from the years 1995 through 2002. He has also been the head coach at Lakeland University in Wisconsin, at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. He also started the football program at Ohio Dominican University in Columbus, Ohio, and he's also had stops along the way as head coach at Valparaiso University and the Belleville campus of Lindenwood University. He is currently semi-retired, living in Indianapolis, Indiana, and he took the time to talk with me for about an hour this week about life, about football, about our days at the Tri-State University. This was a really great interview, a really fun time. I am so happy that he was able to join me on the podcast this week. So without further ado, Mr. Dale Carlson. Welcome one, welcome all to the M60 Podcast. I am your host, John Waltz, and uh, joining me this week for episode number 10, uh, a man that I really look up to, really admire, uh, uh, a man that I, probably the, uh, I would say the highest profile guest that I've had on the show so far, so uh, that's a that's a feather in, your, in the cap for you, coach. Oh. Um, <laughs> Uh, he was uh, my uh, college head coach when I was uh, at Tri-State University doing my undergraduate work. He is Mr. Dale Carlson. Uh, coach Carlson, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to do this. I really do appreciate it. And I'm really excited, uh, actually a little nervous too, to, uh, um, to, to do this. So you'll have to bear with me a little bit. Well, thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh you know, when you reached out to me and, and wanted to uh, uh, talk about some of these issues, I thought, uh, yeah, hopefully I can uh, provide some insight for your listeners and, uh, you know, help, um, help anybody out there that's listening. Great, great. Yeah. Um, so first, uh, Coach, why don't you tell us, um, maybe just give us a brief, what we like to use in the business world is like the, el- we call it the elevator pitch, kind of, you know, how how long it would take an elevator ride to go, um, just kind of a brief history of, of your career and, and your background in, uh, in football, and then we'll kind of get into some of the, uh, the nitty gritty here. Sure. Um, yeah, I spent, uh, you know, almost 40 years coaching uh, football. I started out as a high school coach in the Chicago area, and then uh, got into college coaching, uh, you know, relatively quickly. And uh, was able to uh, become a head coach at a, at a young age. I was 30 years old when I got my head, uh, first head coaching job at Lakeland College in Wisconsin. And then, uh, you know, moved uh, through, uh, you know, a number of different schools. You know, you and I, of course, crossed paths at uh, Tri-State University in Angola, Indiana. It's now called Trine University. I was the first football coach there, started the, the, started the football program uh, at the school. And then uh, from, from Tri-State, I went to Ohio Dominican in Columbus, Ohio, where I was their first football coach, started that program. And, uh, you know, moved, uh, you know, to uh, Valparaiso University, uh, FCS uh, uh, football school, as first division one uh, job. Uh, unfortunately, it didn't work out too well. And, uh, you know, spent the last few years, uh, you know, as an assistant coach at two different schools, was a head coach for a couple of years in another school. And. Uh, now, uh, I, I guess I could say I'm somewhat retired uh, at this point, but, uh, you know, would still be looking for that, that right coaching opportunity, that right thing if it would, uh, if it would happen again. So, uh, but, but yeah, 40 years coaching, 28 as a head coach. So uh, I've been in the game for a long time. You've, uh, you've seen and done and experienced a lot for sure. Um, 
and you've got a little bit more gray in your hair than than uh, than when I first knew you. But uh, yeah, the beard's white too. You might not be able to see that. But, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That that always catches up to you. Um. So one of the things that that I ask all of my guests, and um, so you're you're no different. Um, first question that I always ask is, is, what does it mean to be a man in the 21st century and in the Western world today? You know, I I I, I knew because you had given me that question. I had thought a lot about what that means, and you know, I think I think that um, we have to look back and think about what's in our DNA. You know, uh, from from the dawn of time, you know, men were uh, they were protectors, they were providers, uh, procreators. I mean, that's kind of what our DNA is. And obviously, as the world has changed and we've evolved, um, you know, how those roles work become very, very different. You know, back, you know, in, in uh, caveman days, you know, you had to protect your, your family from other tribes and you had to go out and hunt the big game so that you could eat. And, you know, obviously in today's world, even though that's still part of our DNA, we don't necessarily have to do those things anymore. And so I think, I think uh, as I thought about this question, I think what it means to be a man today is trying to figure out how do I, what is my role as a protector? What is my role as a provider as it, as it relates to, uh, you know, life today? You know, as a, let's take the provider part, you know. I mean, I grew up, um, you know, my dad was the sole provider. Now that started to change a little bit in the late 60s. My mother, uh, you know, went back to work and, and actually ended up working a full-time job, um, you know, through, um, through my high school years and, and, my, and my college years. Um, but, you know, my dad was still, you know, kind of like the, the provider. And I think in the majority of households in the 60s and the 70s, that was still very, very true. Um, so, you know, what does that mean today when you have split families? Uh, I'm sorry, when you have not split families, when you have, you know, uh, both spouses working, uh, maybe you have been in a situation where, you know, your spouse is, uh, uh, you know, the CEO of a company and, and you're not making that type of money. So you're not the main provider. So, I mean, there's so many of those things that, that, that go into that or, or the protector, you know, and the, you know, when you think about the classic, uh, you know, American family coming out of World War II, the male was the protector also of the family. So, so what does that even mean today? If you're not the sole provider, are you still the protector? And so I think you have to figure out how you can manage those roles uh, in your life today. So, you know, if you're, if you're trying to protect somebody, uh, to me, that means how can you help empower somebody? How can you help further, you know, somebody else's life that you come in contact with? And, you know, as, as a coach, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, I wanted to win games. That was the first and foremost thing that was going to keep me employed mm-hmm. was to win. But yet there was that part of me, and this didn't happen all at once. I mean, I had to learn this. As I, as I said, I was a head coach when I was 30 years old, so I, I made a lot of mistakes uh, you know, thankfully, I think I had made most of those by the time you played for me. Uh, but, you know, what I learned is that, you know, if we're going to have success, I also have to make sure I'm just not focused on winning, but I'm trying to develop uh, the young men that, that uh, are, are playing for me and trying to help them to be better people, whether it was students, players, you know, what people. And, and I think hopefully that's something you took from the things that we used to talk about week in and week out. It wasn't just about how to win a game, but it was how to be successful in school, how to be successful when you graduate, go on into your professional life, how to be successful in your interactions with, with people around you. So I think that's, that's part of it. And I think even in terms of the providing part, you know, I think that's true too, to, to try and help provide people with a way for them to you know, have a successful life. Uh, so I think that's one of the things that you have to figure out today is taking some of that innate DNA that we have as men and how am I going to then channel that to, you know, other, you know, other pursuits. I mean, I chose teaching, coaching, coaching mainly, but it was still teaching. And, uh, you know, my hope was that, that over those 40 years, I was able to, you know, try to, to, to uh, help those people that, you know, played for, for, uh, for us in our programs to be, to be better people. 
Yeah, yeah, and I I still do use uh, uh, a lot of the things that I that I learned when I was was playing for you at, at Tri State, and still use uh, one of one of my favorite quotes of yours that I actually learned a few few years later was attributed to uh, to Tom Landry was that uh, things are never as good as they seem, and they're never as bad as they seem. Uh, somewhere in the middle is where reality lies, and I can remember after. You would always say that after we had some big wins or if we had a disappointing loss, um, you know, kind of going in, into our film study that uh, that next day, uh, that was one one thing that always stuck with me because I, I hadn't ever really had that imparted to me before I got there. Um, and so that's uh, I think was that was Tom Landry. That was um, was that one of his? Yeah, you, yeah, I mean, I think there's been a lot of different coaches that have that have uh, that have used that. Um I've heard Lou Holtz say that uh, one of my mentors, Sam Rotigliano, who was the head coach of Cleveland Browns late seventies, early eighties, was at Liberty University during the tri-state uh, time, uh, had had said that, and and I think it's kind of just one of those generic things, but I think it's very true, and I think sometimes we lose focus of, you know, that we we get caught in those highs and lows so much that that uh, we have to really remember that reality isn't always at the best of times. It's not always at the worst of times. Usually it's in the middle someplace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And in these days with social media and with everything being as, as emotionally charged as it is, people have kind of lost sight of that. I feel like, um, and that's one of my goals of, of the podcast is to kind of bring reality a little bit more into focus and uh, for, for men in the world today. So um, kind of going, uh, touching a little bit more about masculinity, uh, talk to us a little bit about your journey and, and your life as a man and what, uh, what has shaped you and, and some of those, uh, key lessons that you've learned along the way. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, uh, one of the things that, that I, I took away and part of this was, was my, was just being an athlete and, and, and playing football and, um, you know, I can, I can remember, this is, a, this is a long story to get there to it, but, you know, I was, I was an only child and I'm sure I was spoiled. In fact, I know I was spoiled. Um, and so, you know, so I think sometimes because of that, and I was kind of a little short, pudgy kid and, you know, I kind of got bullied in the neighborhood a little bit. And, um, you know, I, I um, kind of hit my growth spurt when I was in eighth grade. And uh, growing up in the city of Chicago, there was no, uh, there wasn't really any youth football or anything like that. So I didn't really play football until I was a freshman in, in high school. And I think one of the things that, that came out of that, because I, I loved the game, I loved, I loved playing. Um, one of the things that came out of being uh, playing is I realized that I, I, I like the contact part of the game. I like the physical part of the game. Um, but I think what that taught me was that uh, there's a good outlet, you know, for, uh, for maybe some built up frustration, built up tension. Cause as I started to get bigger and, you know, I remember some of the guys who used to bore me in the neighborhood and all of a sudden I'm a little bit bigger than they are. And, and, um, you know, there was always that thought that I was going to get, I was going to enact, you know, my, my, uh, my, uh, my revenge on them. But, um, I think I, I had this nice outlet to, uh, to, to get rid of, uh, you know, that, uh, that aggression. And, um, so I think as I, as I grew up, as I started to grow and I'm not going to say that I never got into a fight with anybody or never did anything stupid because I did, I did plenty of that stuff, but I always felt like, um, I really didn't have to prove anything to anybody, you know, because, you know, how many people are out there, you know, you go into your high school, you know, and at the time that, you know, when I went to high school, we had like 1200 students and there was, you know, uh, 50 of us on the varsity football team. So there's a lot of those guys that were not out there running into each other every day, you know, doing those sorts of things. And I always felt like I don't have to prove anything to anybody, you know, I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I don't have to, to, to show my masculinity, how tough I am. I'm shown that all the time. That, that was one of those light bulbs that hit up for me. Same thing. I was in college, you know, now you have a smaller group of, of men who were, you know, playing college football as opposed to high school football. So that was one of those defining things I think I always, I always took with me um, uh, to, to the fact that I didn't have to prove anything to anybody. And, you know, even as I, as I became an adult and, and I went through and, I mean, you know, we always, we have our, our times of whether it's road rage, you get angry with somebody, you know, you feel like you just want to punch somebody in the face. But 
um, you know, I always felt like, um, you know, I had an outlet for that. And I think in so many situations today, um, whether it's, it's because people are afraid of, of getting hurt and I'm not just talking football, I'm talking in general and anything that, 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 you know, instead of having that ability to let your, the, 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 the physical part of being a male, so we talked about being a protector and a, a provider, all those things, you know, that, that's in our DNA. I think so many times you don't get that outlet, you know, right, uh, yeah. for males today. I mean, you look at, you know, there's no physical education in so many, uh, schools anymore well that's when you let people get their energy out burn off that steam you know get those things going you know so uh you know so many kids today get behind a a video screen just play video games all all day long there's nothing wrong with doing that but you know there's that lack of that physical activity so i think sometimes a lot of that stuff gets gets built up so i think my point is that that I, i think i was able to navigate a lot of the typical male issues you know of uh uh that DNA because I was very active in sports. And then as an adult, you know, I've always, you know, I tried to stay in decent shape, you know, I run and still, you know, hit the weights, you know, although they're not as heavy as they used to be, but uh, (laughs) I still try and do that because I think that's not only is it healthy, but I think it also helps with that innate desire that we have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I I can, I can agree with that too. I, I feel like the, the, the best times in, in my life where I've, I've felt the best emotionally where I were, um, where I've been, been active and have had, you know, an outlet to, uh, um, to let some of that angst, angst go from the day. And, um, um, so one of the, um, you, you kind of touched on this next question uh, a little bit, but, uh, if you could, we could kind of dive into it a little more, um, so football itself is, is seen as a, a very masculine endeavor. Um, some of the, when we think of, of masculine icons and, uh, and men over the, over the history of Western culture, a lot of, uh, a lot of football players come to mind. Um, you know, there's that iconic shot of uh, Dick Butkus sitting on the bench and his knuckles are all scraped and cracked and, and, and bruised up and guys like, Ray Nitschke in the past, um, kind of more in the modern area. When I think of uh, a really masculine kind of tough football player, I think of a guy like John Runyon he used to play for the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, what, uh, what can the game of football itself teach us about true masculinity and, and what it means to be a good man? Well, I think, um, I think sport and, and, and it's just start with sport. Uh, if you're involved in a team sport, uh, it's so important that you have to be a good teammate. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, taking it, you know, into your, into your life past sports. And, and hopefully those are some of the things that, that I talked about when you were a player is that, um, you know, being able to be that good teammate, understanding what your role is, understanding, you know, what do I need to do uh, to help my, my team? my company, my family, whatever my team is, what do I need to do to help it to be, you know, successful? And I think that's, you know, one of the things to me, football has always been uh, the greatest teacher of that because, you know, we talk about, you know, setbacks in life and, but, but yet, you know, when you're physically knocked down, I mean, you know, you know, you may not have truly been hit right in the mouth, but you know, you've been hit in the head, you've been, you know, hitting the gut, you've been, you know, knocked into your shoulder, you're sore, you're, like you said, your knuckles are all beat up and scraped. And yet you need to put yourself back into the game again and get back up and keep, and keep fighting. And, and that's no matter, you know, if you're ahead, if you're behind, if the game's close. And I think those lessons, I really have always believed that they carry over, you know, into, into adult life. And that, you know, when, when life, you know, throws you a curveball that, that, uh, you know, you might, you might miss it, but yet, you know, you know that you have to put yourself back into the game. You have to put yourself back into the fight. And so I think, you know, being a, you know, being a, a good teammate, um, you know, obviously with the, 
pandemic and stuff, you know, we tend to sit and watch a little bit, a little bit of TV. And uh, I saw a segment, you know, John Gordon and his wife, and I think John Gordon is a tremendous uh, uh, person about, you know, motivation and, and, and how to be successful. And um, they wrote a book, I could think it was, if I'm getting this correctly, it was pre-pandemic, but it was very, very insightful about relationships. And those were the things, some of the things that they talked about in this interview yesterday was being a good teammate in your, you know, in your, in your household. And I think with this, this pandemic, I know that Karen and I have talked a lot about, you know, what that means to be a good teammate and, you know, uh, trying to keep that, you know, first and foremost, as we go forward. And, and I think when you talk about being a man, I think in today, I think that, that there's so much of the fact that, you know, you need to be a good teammate, whether it's in your job, whether it's in your relationships or it's being a parent, um, and, and I think those are some of those lessons that, that you learn, you know, from playing football and, and yeah, you know, the, the, the whole, the physical part of the game and what we tend to, to think about as being very masculine obviously comes forward because, you know, I mean, to, to stand out there and run into each other for three hours every day, every Sunday or Saturday or Friday night, I mean, that takes a lot to, to be able to put yourself up to, to doing that. But yet I think that, you know, going forward, um, you know, understanding what it means to be that teammate. And I think that gets into being that whole idea about being that protector and provider again. I think those all fall right into place with that. Okay. Yeah. That's, um, I, I can remember, um, I was, I was an offensive lineman, um, when I would, when I played, when I played for you and I, being a, being a good teammate and knowing that the person on either side of you has, has your back and, and knowing that, uh, knowing that the person that's, that's going to be uh, handling the ball during, during a particular play, knowing that they're going to be where they're supposed to be and, and that you're there to help, you're there to help them and be that good teammate. That, that is very essential in, in the masculine journey today. And a lot of, what's celebrated as a man today are just individuals and their own individual achievement. And I think we kind of lose what it's like to, to be that good teammate. Um, so I, I would definitely um, parrot that and, and definitely agree with that. Um, well, see, that's why offensive linemen are great people because, you know, they don't get, they don't, the only, the only credit they, or the only, the only uh, uh, pub they ever get in a game is if, uh, is if they get called for holding Right. Uh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, if it's very evident that you missed a block and either quarterback got sacked or the running back got blown up or whatever it is. But I think, I think that's very true. It's about, it's about trying to be, you know, unselfish. And I think that's, that's a, a problem that we all have. I mean, I struggled with, with that, you know, I struggled with that in relationships. And I think you have to be honest that, you know, those are things that you have to you know, focus on that you have to work to be a good teammate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, last question here, then we'll take a quick break and, uh, and hop into some other questions here. But uh, you've had the, the opportunity and, and I would say probably the, the great opportunity that a, a lot of men would, would love to have over the course of their life to, uh, to speak into the lives and, and be a mentor and teacher to so many young men uh, around the country. So Talk to us a little bit about some of the, the life lessons that you've been able to convey and some of the lessons that you maybe that you've learned from other players and, and people that uh, that have coached under you over the years in your in your coaching career. Sure. You know, I, I, I was very lucky that, um, you know, I had some I had some very good mentors, some 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 men that I looked up to it. I mean, I, I got into coaching uh, because of one of the assistant coaches that I had in, in high school. His name was Dennis Menier. And uh, he ended up being a very successful high school coach in the state of Florida, but uh, he was an assistant at Luther North in Chicago where I went to high school. And I'll never forget this. It was, um, it was the end. It was the last game. There's no playoffs in Illinois. So it was the last game of senior year and it was an away game. And we we're playing at, uh, at this school where the stadium, you know, you had to walk across the basically kind of the practice fields to get to the school where the locker rooms were and everything. So we're walking around, uh, walking across and he puts his arm around me and he says, uh, so what are you thinking about doing? And I said, I, I don't know. You know, at, at the time I thought maybe I'd, uh, 
it'd be a police officer. I was actually seriously considering something like that. And he said, uh, do you ever think about being a teacher and a coach? He said, I think you'd be a really good one. And I said, well, I guess, yeah, maybe, you know, I didn't know what to say to him, you know, but, but the more that that, that I thought about that conversation and the more that I, and especially as I, as I finished, um, you know, that football season and I, and I didn't, was not playing anymore. I thought, yeah, you know what? I really love football. And, you know, my plan was to try and play someplace in college, but, um, you know, to be able to go on and teach and coach because I admired him and, and a lot of the other coaches that we had. I thought, you know, it might not be a bad thing. So, you know, I kind of started down that road and then, you know, uh, the, the, the coach that hired me, um, uh, Tom Beck, uh, just my first college job, Elmhurst College in Illinois, um, you know, was a great mentor. And, and Tom was one of those guys that, that you know, uh, taught about life. And um, I spent one season to Franklin College in Indiana as the offensive line coach. And Red Fought, who was the coach there, um, I just saw the alumni and how they just absolutely loved the man for what he had done. Cause he had been at Franklin for almost 30 years by the time I got there. Um, and, and I just saw how people just adored him and, and, I, and, and, and the fact that he was being a difference maker. And so I think as we went forward, you know, with, with the different people that touched my life, I, I hope that at some point I could be a difference maker. And as I told you, you know, I was a head coach at 30. And, and so some of those lessons didn't quite sink in, um, you know, for a while. Uh, they really started to come to fruition uh, at Tri-State. And, and ironically, um, Randy Dunning, who um, uh, was the, was ended up uh, uh, running that Christian campus house that was at Tri-State, he had come in. Mm -hmm. uh, he had been hired by that group of churches that owned that. And uh, he just stopped by. It was when we were starting football. And he just said he wanted to be involved. And so, you know, he would do pregame chapels and those things. And uh, we were actually going into year uh, four. When were you a freshman? 2001. 2001. Okay. So this was before you got there. So we're actually going into year four. And he said, and, or year five, I'm sorry, this was after the playoff year in 98 when we went to semifinals. He said, hey, I think that uh, maybe we could do something a little bit more. We could take a theme. And how about if we take character and we start uh, using that? I said, I think that's a great idea. So obviously when you got there, mm -hmm. yeah, that was always part of the scouting report every week as we, and that's what I latched on to was teaching character qualities. Uh, and so taking those things like discipline and faith and, and, and discernment and, and, and those sorts of things. And so what does that mean to be a football player? What does that mean to be a student? What does that going to mean in your life? And so that's kind of what I, I hung my hat on and was teaching character along with, with, with the coaching part. And, uh, I, I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but, you know, as I talked to players over the years here, um, you know, uh, that seemed to have made an impact on, on a lot of them. And, and they've taken a lot of those things and used them, whether it's in coaching or business or their personal lives. Uh, you know, they were very appreciative that we did those things, you know, within the program. And so, you know, that's kind of where I went, where I hung my head up. Yeah, I can definitely see that uh, from, following uh, some of my former teammates on on Facebook, uh, a couple of guys who have gotten into coaching and have become very, very successful on it. And I always kind of think back to those days when we we played under you and, and those uh, qualities that uh, that you helped to instill in us as as players and as student athletes. And that was that was one thing that that I always felt like that you did, you did well uh, talking to us about was that we were student athletes. We weren't just athletes because a lot of times when people think of the stereotypical college football player, they're just there to play football and bring in money for the university. That's kind of the image that's, that's been portrayed through movies like the program, you know, and, and um, so I always, when, when I got to campus there, I, I changed my, my internal lingo real quick. Like I'm a student athlete. I'm not, I'm not just a football player. And I think that was one thing that you and the, and the men that worked under you did, did really well. Um, so kind of touching on 2001, um, we'll, this will be the last question for this segment and then we'll get into a little bit lighter subjects, but, um, um, at the time of this recording, we're about uh, one month past the uh, um, the 19th anniversary of the September 11th uh, terrorist attacks, and 
uh, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about what your experience during that day and during that time was, uh, was like, because, um, that was, I was there playing at Tri-State playing under you when, when those events occurred. And so, so many of my memories from that day are tied to Tri-State and tied to, tied to the football program. So, um, I can tell you just from my, my own recollection, when, uh, when the news first broke, I was actually in the, in the weight room doing lap pull downs. Um, when the, uh, when the, the TV stopped playing music and when it went to, went to news, uh, I remember we had a JV game at Manchester that night before. So I was very, very tired and very, very kind of, kind of grouchy. And, and I was in, I wasn't in the early group, but I was in that middle group, that seven o'clock lifting group. And so that was, you know, for an 18 year old kid, that's still pretty early in the morning. Um, but, uh, just, uh, and I remember it was kind of up in the air, whether we were going to play that week. And, and I can re- just remember just the overall feeling of, of feeling overwhelmed because it was, uh, classes had only been going on for a few weeks. And, and this is like, I'm still trying to adjust life as a, as a college student and, and being a completely different, even going into, even in, in your program, it was a lot different. It was a completely different program than what I played in, in high school. So, um, I can just remember feeling kind of overwhelmed and maybe a little bit defeated that day. Um, so talk to us a little bit about your recollection of, of that day and that, that time period and what, uh, what your experiences were. Sure. Well, it's, uh, as you said, you know, for, for our generation, um, you know, we, we identify, you know, where were we at that time? Uh, ironically, my daughter was uh, sick. So uh, Karen was uh, teaching at Angola Middle School at, at the time. So uh, she was actually uh, at school, um, didn't want to uh, have her call in to uh, get a sub. You know, we had to uh, work to try and save some of those days for her just because recruiting, I'd be gone this was a time, you know, I could uh, stay home, take care of, uh, of our daughter till uh, she could kind of bug out a little bit towards the end of the day when she had a free period. So anyways, I was actually at home watching video, um, working on uh, game planning, and uh, I, didn't, I hadn't had TV on because I was, was you know, at that time, we we're still using VCR, so I had a video in of Taylor, that's who we were going to play that weekend. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, was going through. And then uh, finally I turned ESPN on uh, just to um, uh, have something on while I was writing up the practice plans and kind of getting ready for the offensive guys were going to come over and we were going to sit down and meet a little bit. And and I had actually been on the phone with Joe Nemeth and just kind of gone through the practice plan. So he could get ready to do what he needed to do defensively for that afternoon's practice. And uh, Karen actually called me and she said, are you watching TV? I said, well, ESPN. I said, put the Today Show on. She said, something happened. And she said, well, I got to go. So I, I put the Today Show on and it took a few minutes until I actually figured out that, you know, the, the, the planes had been crashed into the, the tower. And um, I actually saw the second one uh, go into the, 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 the tower at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, kind of had that on and, uh, Ron Lang and Jeff Stansky came over and we kind of turned it off and we talked about the week or the day and, and what we we're going to do. And then they took off with all the practice plans and everything. And, you know, I, I kind of pretty much kind of sat there and watched it up until about one thirty quarter to two when Karen came home and uh, went over to, to try state to, to get ready for practice. And of course I walked in and, you know, Joe Nemeth came in and said, well, got a lot of players have been up and there's a lot of questions going on. What are we going to do? And I saw, I, I don't know. So I went downstairs and I talked to Dick Hack, who's the athletic director. And, and he said, what, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I said, what's Taylor want to do? I mean, it's their game. I mean, they're the ones that I think are going to make that call. He said, well, I've got a call into them. So he said, let me, let me find out. He said, let's just assume that we're going to go and we're going to play. So I remember we went out to practice that day and I don't know if I said anything at the beginning. I might have, I don't remember that. I remember we practiced. Mm -hmm. uh, And then afterwards though, uh, there were definitely some questions that we talked about what's going to happen, you know, and I think it got, it started to get kind of heavy, you know, are we going to be attacked? Are we going to have to go to war? Are we going to, you know, what's this all mean? And, um, I, 
he said, you know, nobody's got any answers, you know, right now. Um, I said, I've thought about, you know, where we're going and what we're doing. And I, I think I said it this way and, and I, John, I don't, obviously I don't remember, but I believe I said in my opinion, I feel very strongly that if we can play this week, we should play. Otherwise mm-hmm. we're going to let uh, the terrorists win. And yeah. I said, I don't, I'm sure nobody in Washington or New York or in the Middle East cares what Tri-State and Taylor do, but I think we're going to send a statement. We would send a statement one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Are we going to capitulate or are we going to, you know, are we going to play? And I yeah, said, no, there may be some That's kind of how I remember. Here. Yeah, that's kind of how I remember you, you, you phrasing that. that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I said, no, there could be some things out of our control, but I said, are we all in agreement that we should play? And I, I think everybody said, yeah, we should, we should play. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's scary, but we should play. So I just remember that, you know, there were, you know, guys would come in and out of the office during, during the week and we, we talk. And, and I remember the next day, Wednesday morning, uh, Dick and I sat down and he said, what do you think? And I said, I think we should play. I said, I think we're letting them win if we don't. I said, I, there's no danger. Nobody's going to come and attack uh, Jim Wheeler Memorial Stadium in Upland, Indiana. I said, we're riding a bus for an hour and 45 minutes. We don't have to worry about that. You know, I mean, I got it why some events had to cancel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Stuff, yeah. Said, we were small enough programs at the time. It wasn't going to. Yeah, you know, matter matter much, and I remember I it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and I remember it was actually kind of nice having a little bit of normalcy in in my routine that week. And actually, uh, I wasn't dressing and traveling with the team at the time, um, but uh, my parents and I went down to the game, and I just remember it was kind of nice. You know, it was kind of nice um, being a part of the being a part of the game somewhat, and just you know watching what was going on. It kind of provided a little bit of a, a little bit of escape from you know from what was going on in the world sure. because it was just. I mean, even then, it was just all over the place, um, and this was you know before social media and, and things like that. But it was still at the top of everyone's mind, and um, but. Um, so uh, going into our next segment here, um, I'm gonna we'll uh, we'll talk about a, f- a few a few lighter things, but I kind of wanted to to touch on that since you had uh, had we had brought up the year that I was a that I was a freshman, and and uh, we'll uh, we'll take a quick pause, quick break here, and we'll be right back. This is the N60 podcast. One thing that we've been able to do, at least in this part of the world during this whole COVID pandemic, is get out on the golf course and play some golf, enjoy nature, enjoy time with our friends. One of the things that's drawn me back to the game of golf is when I do hit that good shot, when I do shoot that low score. And what can we do to get better at golf? Well, we can be like everybody else and watch Golf Channel for hours on end. We can get on YouTube and watch instructional videos and not have any kind of feel for what they're trying to teach us in those videos and you can follow certain accounts on Instagram and act like you're getting good information and improving your game or what I recommend you do is you can become a student of the game of golf. The best way to do that is pick up a copy of my friend Scott Hassey's book The Champions Playbook Thinking Your Way to Lower Scores. In this book, Scott will take you through seven courses about how to sharpen your course strategy, everywhere from having a plan, developing that plan, developing your own instincts, knowing the actual distances that you hit your clubs, and a whole lot more. Scott also has a podcast that he produces weekly here in Franklin, Tennessee. You can tune into that. It's great stuff. I'll have links for both in the description below. But be sure to pick up a copy of his book, The Champion's Playbook. It's available on Amazon. And as I said, a link will be in the description below. Also, a link to his podcast, The Champion's Playbook Podcast, will also be in the description below.
Welcome back to the M60 Podcast. I am your host, John Waltz. Joining us this week is my college football coach, Mr. Dale Carlson, joining us. We uh, we kind of d- talked about in the first segment what it means to be a man, talk a little bit about the masculine journey and uh, a few other kind of broad subjects here. Now we're going to kind of narrow it down a little bit to uh, some football-related stuff. So, Coach, first question right out of the gate. I know you've got uh, about 40 years of experience to draw from. So uh, if you can't think of anything, uh, I, I've got a few memories from my playing days with you that, that I can definitely bring up and maybe get your reactions to. But uh, is there maybe a particular moment or a, or a particular uh, maybe game or practice or interaction with a, a player or a member of your staff that kind of comes to mind um, when you think back on your coaching career? Yeah, yeah there's, there's so many um... – so many great memories uh, that I have. Um, I've been so lucky to have, you know, just some great young men that, that, uh, you know, chose to play for us as well as, um, you know, some, some great coaches who were uh, very smart football men were excellent teachers really cared about, uh, you know, really cared about the, uh, you know, the players. Um, You know, I think about, um, you know, what, what are some of those, you know, some of those moments, um, you know, one of the one of the moments um, comes from that 1998 tri-state season, uh, where it was a fourth-year football. Uh, we had gone from, you know, winning a couple of games, um, you know, the first year that we played to, you know, getting all the way to the national semifinals. Um, we'd actually we were nine and zero, and we lost the last two games of the season, um, and uh, so we were kind of on the bubble about whether we were going to, uh, get into, uh, get into the playoffs and, uh, because we did not win the conference championship. And so we had to get voted in. And I remember sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the final, uh, ratings to, uh, you know, to, to be posted, uh, which they were, and we, we, we were 15th. So it looked like we were in and then having to wait to finally get the phone call from the NAIA that we were in. And, um, so uh, uh, I uh, wanted to make sure we put the last two weeks behind us. And uh, so uh, we had our normal, which you remember, we had an afternoon meeting at three o'clock. I think we ended up having to push it back. So I was waiting to see what would happen with this phone call. And so finally we get down to the meeting and we're in, in one of those upper gyms in, in the old Hershey Hall at Tri-State. And uh, I didn't want to focus at all on what had happened you know, the previous two weeks. So I brought a video takedown that we put, we played Tiffin in the last game. We'd written Tiffin 1998 on it. And uh, I threw it down on the floor and I had a hammer in my hand and I was kind of looking around and I went down and I said, we're just going to forget this game even existing. And I went, take the hammer to bust it and I missed and I put a big gash in the floor oh. in the gym, which I never owned up to, by the way. <laughs> uh, I'm sure somebody, they, I mean, everybody, but everybody just laughed, you know, and I think we, we kind of broke the, broke the mood and said, okay, we're moving on. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're going forward. Ironically though, um, you know, the next year um, when we got to play Tiffin again and all of a sudden a video surfaced and it was like, I thought you destroyed that, you know, <laughs> well, that was a pretend copy. We still had to have it so we could get ready to play the next year. But I, I mean, I think that was one thing that I remember kind of a lighter moment. I mean, I, I totally missed it. I mean, and I, and I wound up and I came down as hard as I possibly could and just, right into the floor. I a, think I remember when I got there that Mark was still in there a little bit. Oh I, yeah. I can't, no, it was still I, never got fixed. Yeah, <laughs> and I yeah, never owned I, it. <laughs> yeah. I looked down at, I remember looking down at the floor one day. I was like, what in the world? Um, I remember one, one moment that kind of a lighter moment like that. Um, Clint Hetrick, one of our uh, running backs, um, he, he dressed up as you for Halloween one year and you called him up in front of the team uh, in our afternoon meeting. You're like, okay, where's Hetrick? And I was like, oh, this could go one of two ways. And you were, you were a really good sport about it. So I, I just remember, remember that as one of the, the lighter moments when I was playing, playing yeah. for you. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I think, um, you know, just thinking about, you know, you mentioned that 2001 season and everything with, uh, you know, with, uh, with nine 11 and, uh, all that stuff that happened. And I mean, if you, you know, remember, um, game nine, we went down to St. Francis 
mm-hmm. and they hadn't yeah. lost a home game. They hadn't lost a conference game for, I don't know, you know, for a while. And, um, you know, we had barely lost to them the year before in a really, really close game, 20 to 13. And um, so uh, Ron Lang was our offensive line coach at the time. And uh, it's in the fourth quarter. Oh, I remember this. This happened we're, right we're in front of me. And, um, you know, the referee spots the ball and Ron's like, wait a minute, you, that's not the sport the guy marked it. You're off on your spot. And I mean, I have no idea this is going on behind me. Uh, and the next thing I know, a flag gets thrown. We get a 15-yard bench penalty because Ron's arguing with the, you know, with the official about, you know. Yeah, what, he, uh, he talked about his spot using rather colorful language, if I probably. remember. That was, I, was, I was on the – that happened right in front of me when, when that, occur, that incident occurred. I, I can vividly remember that. That's, uh... so, so now we're – yeah, so now we're – I mean, we're like – I think the ball was on now on the 15-yard line, and we're looking at like – nine miles to get a first down and i mean i called a running play just to try and get some space so we could punt the ball out adam Ryder was our punter was having a great day punting the ball and had pinned them back you know so much and uh you know we we ran and i, I won't i'll never forget this it was 23 it was inside zone and mike newbill was from right to left and he cut back to the right and there was nobody there and he took off. And if you remember that field, their field was awful mm-hmm, and it yeah. had rained or something. And it was like playing in quicksand and somehow he was able to slog his way through, get out to the, to the sideline where the field was a little bit better. And then he just ran by everybody. And that ended up being the, you know, the winning touchdown. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I loved Ron. And I just went over and I put my arm around him and I said, you are one lucky son of a gun. I don't think I said it that way, but I said, you are one lucky son of a gun today, buddy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I remember the look on his face. He was, cause I, I said something to him right after, uh, right after Mike broke that. And yeah, I can't remember what I said to him, but I was trying to cheer him up and lift up his spirits a little bit. And I could still remember the look on his face. Like he, he thought like, he looked like he was ready to throw up still even after, you know, and this yeah. was like when Mike was, was on the, on his way down the field and, and it was evident nobody was going to catch him. And, and, uh, but that was, that game too, that was probably one of the best feelings that I've ever had as an athlete, even though I didn't, you know, get an opportunity to play in that game. I, I still, cause that was a big deal. You know, we went down there and I mean, for, for our level of football that if college game day had an NAIA show, they would have been down there. Yeah, no doubt. They absolutely, absolutely would have been down there. And, and you know, the, the thing about, and again, you talk about going back to what we originally talked about protectors and providers, you know, that uh, if you remember Jordan Geely's parents had the whole team over for a cookout after that game. Mm-hmm. And when we got, finally got back to Angola, um, you know, I had Ron come over, we watched whoever was the late game on ESPN had a couple of beers and stuff. And I just wanted them to know that, all right, you know, you made a mistake we've all, we all make them. It all happens, you know, it worked out, but you know, you got to make sure you learn from it. And I think, you know, for him to know that, that, you know, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't angry with him at that point, you know, that uh, we're still in good shape. But if you remember though, uh, John Bethurm got beat up in that game. Pete Hobbs got beat up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that game and the next week, but uh, Jimmy Oliver had to play quarterback the next week and we had to win that game against Malone to, to, yeah, uh, to make the playoffs that year. Playoffs. Yeah. And uh, we did. And uh, so I think it was, again, just a group of guys that were just not going to be denied. And I think mm-hmm. that was the other thing that came out, whether it was at that game or the St. Francis game. It was just a great group of players to be around. Yeah, yeah, they really were. Yeah, I. Uh, those are some of my uh, my most fond memories of, of my lifetime, just remembering being on that team and being around those guys. And, um, you know, like I said, I – even though I didn't get a, a, an opportunity to, to see the field, I still think of them as, you know, as, as close, close teammates and, and close friends. Um, so kind of looking back into, um, we're coming up here on time a little bit. Um, wanted to, uh, to ask you about, it's something that I, that I talk to a lot about, uh, with, with my guests. Um, first off, um, gosh, I almost missed this question. Probably, Probably one of the things that that's defined you and, and your coaching career is you've you've had an opportunity to start uh, multiple uh, college football programs over the course of your career, and so 
If you could um, just talk to uh, the audience and, and the listeners a little bit about what that process is like, and maybe if you can give us a little bit of inside baseball as far as, you know, what, uh, what goes on when you're starting a program from scratch and, and what your experiences uh, were surrounding that. Uh, yeah, I did it, I did it twice uh, at Tri-State and then at, at Ohio Dominican University uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Um, yeah, I, I really, I think it's like, it's like starting a business. I mean, for anybody that's, that's uh, ever done that, that's in your, in your audience. I mean, it seems like it's overwhelming and at times it is. Uh, it, in both those situations, um, it was me doing everything for a, a period of time, a little bit longer at Tri-State than it was at Ohio Dominican. Um, but I, I think that uh, in order to do something like that, uh, you just have to, you have to understand, first of all, you have to know what your long-term vision is. And, you know, mine was we were going to be competitive on the national level and compete for a national championship. So we set high goals. Uh, and then we had to go about the job of, with nothing there, no stadium, no weight room, no nothing, uh, having to convince people that we could actually go and do this. And uh, I think part of that, really what it comes down to, and I think it's true when you, whenever, as I said, if you start a business or, you know, if you're promoted to lead a department, I mean, you have to, first of all, be comfortable about who you are and then be able to communicate your vision to the people that you're going to work with and then find the people that believe in your vision and that are willing to go out and work to, to make it happen. And that's what we did. I mean, we looked for, you know, uh, players who wanted to be the first in something and thought that that would be a really cool thing to do and, and that would be willing to work to get to that point. And, uh, you know, knowing that um, from the first day we start, they're not all going to be there on the last day when they're seniors, which, you know, is, is always going to be the case, but to, to, to be able to have a vision, to be able to articulate that vision to donors, student athletes, high school coaches, the faculty and staff on the school and, and at the school, and then obviously work hard to, to make that happen. And, you know, I mean, that's a very brief thumbnail about how to, about, about doing it. Uh, I believe I did it better the second time um, just because I had done it once. Uh, but there were still obviously those types of challenges that we had to, that we had to overcome to, to make that to make that happen. But I think it was about finding the right people, and uh, that obviously didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen with the coaches. It didn't happen with all the players. But as we built the program and as we went forward, you know, we found those guys that really believed and bought into what we were doing, and, and became you know very integral parts of the success that we had. Yeah, well, I I would say you did a did a great job at Tri-State. I was um, I was very um, my parents actually kind of pushed me in the the direction to uh, to give to give the the program a try because when I was applying there as a student and when I was looking for places to potentially go to college, football hadn't even crossed my mind. And um, depending on who you talk to from my high school, I was either like one of the the better players that my program had ever ha had had, or, you know, I, I kind of look at it like, you know, I was, I was good, but I wasn't, obviously I hadn't received any scholarship offers or anything like that. But um, having gone into when I, when I got to, when I got to Angola and when I, um, I went down for a, a spring practice um, and even, during that off season lifted weights with some of the guys down there like, okay, this is a, this is a pretty, pretty structured program. And I'm, I'm pretty impressed with what they've got going on here. So I'll, I'll definitely stay the course and, and actually having good, good coaches around me too, was something that I didn't necessarily have in my high school days. So that was really a, a good blessing for me to have too, to, to, to come down uh, and be part of the, the tri-state football program. Um, so last question, um, another one that I ask uh, all of my guests, let's just say, you know, you've, and I'm sure you've probably had this situation um, occur to you a few times over the course of your career, but you have an opportunity to speak to a young man. They're kind of a, a, a little disenfranchised and, and frustrated with life as a whole and maybe a little bit directionless and, and they're not really sure where to go or where to turn to. Um, in, in the world today, what 
kind of advice and what kind of encouragement would you give a young man in that situation? You know, I've always, um, I'm a, I'm a glasses half full type of guy. Um, I I don't think you can be in in coaching and and be, you know, uh, well, you get pessimistic sometimes, but your overall attitude better not be that way. You're not going to, you're not going to survive. And um, I I think it's, it's about what I would tell them is what is it that you want to accomplish? What are your goals? If you haven't thought about it, then you need to think about it and don't be afraid to set, to set high goals. Uh, You know, as I mentioned to you, when I started the two programs, our goal was to compete on the national level and win a national championship. Well, we never won a national championship, but yet um, we competed at a high level. Uh, We played in national playoffs. Uh, We were, you know, uh, arguably one of the best teams in the country in our conference, you know, for a sustained period of of time. If you were going to win our league, you had to beat us. Uh, And uh, so we built that type of of a program because we set high goals. I'll never forget this. I was, we were, um, we just finished the first year at, uh, at Tri-State and I was in the Cleveland area recruiting and uh, I'd gone out to get something to eat. And before I went back to the hotel recruiting calls, uh, I went into a Barnes and Noble or whatever. And I was just kind of walking around looking and I found a book called Go for the Magic and it was written by, and I can't think of the guy's name. Uh, he'd been a GM of the Philadelphia 76ers and then he was hired to uh, start the Orlando Magic. And he went down to Orlando and he figured out that, that the thing that really drove the Orlando area was Walt, was Walt Disney World. So he did a very comprehensive look at the success that Walt Disney had. And one of the things that, that Walt Disney used to say is you shoot for the moon to jump over the fence. And yeah, maybe you remember, I might have said this while you were there, uh, but that's why you set high goals. You shoot for the moon to get over the fence and you may not get to the moon, but you're going to get pretty high. And so that's, I guess, think that's what I would say is that, you know, if you're feeling down low, what are your goals? Is it personal? Is it professional? What is it you want to accomplish? And then, okay, let's look and see, you know, what those, what those might be. And then the the, the second part of that is then I said, the the second part is you've got to be willing to work to get it done. And the third part is you got to believe in yourself that you're going to get it done. And I think that's the, the part that, that, uh, you know, I've always believed in myself that I could get the job done. Um, didn't always, I failed, we all do, uh, but I've always believed that. And um, I've always felt that I'm gonna shoot for the moon and jump over the fence. Yeah, and, and to kind of add one of the things that, that I took away from my playing days with you, um, you've got to believe in yourself that you can get the job done. You've got to believe, because there, there were there were games that, that came in that I had a little bit of doubt in, in my mind. I mean, I was, you know, scout team, scout team guy. So I didn't really have, you know, much of an impact in the actual game itself during, you know, on, on Saturdays. But at the same time, I came to, came to an epiphany one, one day when we were walking out on the field for, for a game, like we've got to believe that we can beat this team or, or we won't. I mean, you know, it's not just going to magically happen. We've got to, in order to even get to the point where we can start thinking about winning this game or beating this team, we've got to believe that we can. And that's, that's one thing that I always, I mean, that's how, that's how underdogs always, always win is that they've, first of all, they've got that belief that, that they can make that happen. So, um, uh, Pat Williams, uh, wrote that book Thank you. for the magic. Yep. I was on the right track, Pat. I couldn't think it was last yeah. And I'll uh, I'll be sure to put the a link to that book in the uh, in the show notes and the description. Um, so, um, Coach, we're, we're come we're uh, at the end of uh, end of time here for uh, for our interview today. Do you have anything that you uh, that you want to plug or anything else that you uh, you want to say to wrap things up? No, John. I mean, it's been a, it's been wonderful to uh, to sit and talk about uh, you know a lot of different issues. It's been great to relive some of those uh, great memories uh, that we had uh, together. And I really appreciate you asking me to do this. And I, I wish you, you know, tremendous uh, success with, uh, with your podcast and uh, uh, good for you for, for tackling an issue and trying to reach out and make people's lives better. Uh, you're doing that uh, providing and protecting thing. Thank you. Thank you, coach. Well, that was uh, Dale Carlson, my uh, head football coach from my days at Tri-State University. Uh, 
you can read all about him. Um, I'll put a link to his w- Wikipedia bio, if that's okay, Coach, in the in the show notes. Yeah, that's fine. Just just watch the the total record of some of the schools, though. That's okay. Don't yeah. don't, don't make fun of that. <laughs> let's yeah. Let's focus on uh, focus on tri-state and Ohio Dominican. Those are the, the those are the ones you need to focus on. But um, thanks so much, Coach. I appreciate it. I just wanted to show you that. Still got uh, still got the ring. Yeah, got our that's ring. Exactly where mine is too. Yeah, uh, awesome. And I've got my jersey, my jerseys hanging in the uh, hanging in the closet. So um, Very good for you. But uh, I'll uh, I'll let you know when this is posted. Thanks again. Thanks so much for doing this. This is the M60 podcast, and we will talk to you next time. Thanks so much again to Coach Dale Carlson for joining me for this episode of the M60 podcast. Be sure to like this episode, subscribe to the podcast, share it with a few friends who uh, may need some advice on their journey as a man. And if you're interested in sponsorship of this uh, podcast to help me create this content, you can email me at m60podcast at gmail.com. Put sponsorship in the subject line. Also, check out my Patreon page. Links to that will be in the show notes where you can uh, check out some good stuff that we're going to have behind the paywall here coming very, very soon. So my name is John Waltz. I'm the host of the M60 Podcast. And as I said before, we will talk to you next time.